I'm originally from New Jersey, grew up right outside Manhattan, uh, became a Christian about seven years ago as an adult, and found my way out to uh, a seminary out in LA for four years. But while out there, I felt a call to plant a church, and yeah, as she said, uh, from LA, I knew about Forefront. Uh, you guys are doing amazing work. It's going all the way across the country. Uh, I was looking for a place that was affirming uh, and inclusive, um, maybe had an evangelical aesthetic, because a lot of people are used to that. And I was just thoroughly impressed with Forefront. So as soon as I got here in New York, I started uh, just to get to know some org organizations, some community organizers, um, some activists, and local churches in New York, uh, so that I would lay some groundwork in some partnerships to plant a new church in Manhattan. And the first church that I got in, in touch with was Forefront and happened to meet with Jonathan. And from Jonathan to the staff uh, to y'all, it's been an incredible partnership so far. I hope um, that we see more of each other. And uh, if you have any questions about my church, this is a shameless plug. Happy to talk about it later. Um, but please stay at Forefront. <laughs> uh, you know, if we could pull the verse up, I'd, I'd like to read the verse and then I'll, I'll jump right into it. So this is out of Numbers 27, verses 1 through 11. So then the daughters of Zelephahad came forward. Zelephahad was son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Maker, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Massonite clan. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what, in what they are saying. Uh, you shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers, and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall also say to the Israelite, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughters. If he has no daughter, then you should give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for the Israelites a statute and ordinance as the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. Uh, if you would, pray with me real quick. God, let um, the meditations of our hearts uh, and the words of our mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Okay, so we find ourselves in the book of Numbers today, which, as I can imagine, is one of everyone's favorite parts of the Bible. Uh, while Numbers carries a reputation for stopping even the most dedicated evangelical in her tracks from completing a Bible in a year reading, I also think it's a book that helps us see more clearly the character of God, especially today's passage. Uh, mainly in Numbers, we read how Israel intends to gather and organize herself once she enters the Promised Land. Remember, she has just come out of Egypt. She has just been rescued from a tyrant. 
So Numbers shows us God's intentions for Israel's future, at least as the writers um, articulate the history. So in this scene, we're introduced to five daughters. Uh, you want to leave the, the, the text up just for a little bit? Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza, who are seeking a better solution to the one that they're destined to receive. So after dividing the land up uh, for each tribe of Israel, these daughters come forward on their own accord to find out that their family will be allotted nothing. Why? Because land allotment travels through the sons. And as we read, Zelophehad had no sons. This is, of course, a patriarchal society wherein women are mere beneficiaries of their husbands and sons' inheritance, but women have no material wealth themselves. The son carries on his father's name, and the son or sons receive dad's inheritance. But moreover, and this is the part of the story that I want to focus on today, with no sons to pass on Zelophehad's inheritance to, these five women are immediately put in a very precarious position. See, this story, as I said, comes at an interesting time in Israel's history. Israel's not yet in her land, but is next door in Moab, figuring out what life will look like once they get to the promised land. So they're figuring out all these laws. They're kind of writing their own constitution, so to speak. Who will get the land? How will the land be maintained over the life of Israel? How will they be neighbors, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Let's figure out the inheritance structure. So as God makes uh, abundantly clear over and over again in the Old Testament, especially throughout Numbers, this is God's land. And Israel and the Israelites can essentially squat on it, provided they care for the poor, they care for the powerless and the needy, as well as provided that they're good neighbors to other people next door in the land of Canaan. So like with any new like fill-in-the-blank, we build systems and structures around that thing, country, family, school, business, church, denomination, etc., uh, so that it can be sustained. And so usually the people writing these systems or building these systems are doing it for the sake of human flourishing. Um, it's, it's usually an attempt to l- limit the, the threats to one's body um, in that church, in that country, in that state, etc., So ultimately, this is the hard work that Israel's taking on in the book of Numbers. So in the previous chapter, Numbers 26, a census is taken. The men, and only the men, are counted so that Moses can allot the land accordingly. But in the middle of this dense census data, seemingly to be random, we're told that Zelophehad, son of Hefer, has no sons. So by the time we get here to Numbers 27, we realize that the earlier point was foreshadowing. Uh, the writer is trying to tell us something that we should be paying attention to because they're going to focus on it later. So something significant is about to happen. So chapter 27 begins with the daughters coming forward with boldness and courage and determination, asking Moses to adjudicate their situation. After all, despite Moses' best efforts to account for everything and everyone, clearly these five women have been left out of their plans. If they don't get any inheritance and they don't care their father's name for it, not only will they be extremely marginalized, but their own family name will be wiped from the history of Israel. And at that time, I would say in this time too, in that culture, such a reality was devastating. It meant something for their children. So should these women suffer such shame and disinheritance under the system that Moses seeks to build in God's name is the question. So the women, as I said, come forward essentially to a public and open guys elitist club. Just picture it if you can. In fact, I, I 
put a little uh, picture in there. Uh, if you could throw it up, yeah. As you can see, all like uh, English-looking people, um, which is, of course, what they looked like. Um, it's the only picture I found, I'm sorry. So uh, the women come forward essentially to a public and open guys elitist club. You got Moses, you got Eleazar, the high priest. See, what's different from America today, at least formally, is that this is actually the meeting ground of God Almighty. So it's the, it's the religion of Israel and the nation of Israel being put together in one place. So there really is no other authority than, than what's gathered here amongst these men. So all these men and all the congregation, as the verse says, uh, all, again, all of the men, uh, are there for these women to plead their case. The women aren't invited, but the women go nonetheless. The women aren't given a seat, and yet they come nonetheless to talk to Moses. So it is for sure an interesting scene, and the drama can be palpable if we can just sit in the scene for a little bit. They tell Moses, hey, this whole structure that you've set up, uh, it's not going to work out too well for the five of us. If you're going to tie the future of Israel and her tribes to land allotment and have it travel exclusively through male progeny, well, then you've already decided our fate. Luckily, as we see here, Moses' response is to take this case before God, and God's conclusion, so it says, is rather straightforward. Verse 7, the daughters of Zelephahad are right in what they're saying. Indeed, let them possess an inheritance. Moreover, not only is this specific case adjusted, but as we see in the later verses, like a good judge that sets precedence, this law and this standard that was set before they spoke up was adjusted for all future generations. Should Israel ever come across another case like this again, the daughters will get their inheritance. Amen. Without a doubt, this is a win for the daughters, and all women for that matter. They now have an inheritance. Their father's name will continue through Israelite history, and probably something they did not and could not anticipate their act forced an addendum to the current standard for the sake of future generations of women. So everybody wins, right? Not so fast. If I'm honest for a second, uh, at least for me, the details of this story are troubling. First problem is this scene is all birthed out of an already flawed and unjust, unjust system of patriarchy under which women really have no independence. They're not even counted in the previous chapter's census. It's not like at the end of this story it says, dot, 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 and Moses saw the error of his ways, with God's help, of course, and Israel started to value women more, and then patriarchy died forever. No. In fact, at least here, we see no explicit critique of the norm, neither from God nor Moses. And as we know from history, and women obviously f feel this far more acutely in their bodies than I can ever, uh, we're dealing with the same remnants of this patriarchal, man's world, paternalistic nonsense today. So to a very large degree, my question is, what gives here? Second problem for me, why did it take the daughters raising their case to Moses for Moses to move? And moreover, to bring a contemporary, why does it always take the dispossessed and the disinherited to show the errors of the, the I, I would say our ways, I put our ways here, but anyone who's in power. Why do those in power, myself included and myself indicated the same, why do those in power remain so blind and deaf to those falling through the cracks of faulty systems? Also, why didn't Moses just make a call on the spot? Was their potential poverty, dispossession, disinheritance, and the end of their family name not enough for Moses to adjust? 
He had to actually take that back to God for a decision. What did he think God was going to say? Yeah, I accounted for that. That's good. We don't need those five women. This is troubling. Seems like both God and Moses dropped the ball. A faulty inheritance structure built on the foundation of patriarchy, all in the, in the name of God, no less. Lots and lots and lots in numbers of thus saith the Lord's. And allegedly for the sake of all God's people. So this seems already like a failed system before it's even implemented. Moses didn't notice, Eleazar the high priest didn't notice, and the leaders of each tribe seem not to notice. No one seems to be acting according to the basic command of imitatio Dei, which is the call of us to act in, God, in the imitation of God's qualities, which are grace and mercy and inclusion, etc. So God, in, in, in the imitatio Dei of the distribution of goods, Moses is really getting this one wrong. And again, as, as, as it is often the case, those who write policy, standards, and norms of any time, of any place, are often the most oblivious to the people on the margins. On the other hand, the daughters of Zelephahad are rock stars. I, I mean, they know the law and they know their audience. Pay attention to verse 3. They're quick to note that their father had not paired with Korah, who previously had led a rebellion and fractured the Israelite community earlier in the book. So they say he died of his own sins, their, their father. As in, he did not cause anyone else to sin, but died on his own accord, unlike those who were misled by Korah. So they do not appeal to themselves, but to their father's name. They know what they're doing. Let's not, let not his lack of sons be the end of our name. And while you're at it, help us out, Moses. If there ever was a shrewd, creative appeal to power, this is it right here. As a well-known feminist theologian puts it, how incredibly daring are these daughters in coming forward to speak personally and publicly to the great Moses. That's sarcastic, the great Moses. Moreover, their question involves not just Moses' opinion, but a suggestion that a direct decree of the deity is inadequate and should be revised. Surely this was a monumental moment in the history of women's rights. And to all of that, we should say amen. Still, the fact that this case ever needed to be raised is still frustrating to me. I wrestled with this as I wrote this sermon. It seems like at no point in time can humanity figure out a way, a system, a structure that will take care of all of us. If you doubt me, ask a social worker or a teacher or a community organizer. They'll tell you the same. And as a realist, which I am, I know that it is an honest assessment that folks will fall through the cracks. But I think here's the crux. I'm not invited to be a realist. I'm invited to be a Christian. And that requires a deeper imagination, a wider imagination about how this world could be. And so, yes, things are broken. But again, I'm pri I primarily defined as a Christian. So I must constantly wrestle with the reality of less than perfect and not accept it. I must adopt, then possess, then sharpen a permanent discontentedness, a permanent discontentedness and resistance to well-intended systems. I don't want to talk about the intentions. Well-intended systems that nevertheless continue to leave people out of the fold, out of our society, leaving them without an inheritance. So while familiar inheritance might be a bit foreign for us in 2018 in, in America, there are some equivalents here. Essentially, the inheritance addressed in numbers could be called in today's world, this is the definition I wrote, the equitable and fair access and security needed for humankind to flourish. One more time. The equitable and fair access and security needed for humankind to flourish. The daughters of Zelephahad needed access. 
to an inheritance in order to live and flourish. Their father's name was security if they were male. Their father's name was access, access to economy and societal access. For if they went without inheritance, again, their name would mean nothing in history. So only through marriage could they be redeemed. But again, their name is lost and their inheritance is only passed through their, their spouse. So they'd need to come to rely, if they didn't get married especially, on the generosity and hospitality of others, which, by the way, is not a guarantee either, as we learn about Israel. So quite literally, quite seriously, their lives were at risk. So I have a few reflections of the story, uh, and then I'll make a few points. First, this story is both encouraging and, and discouraging. It's encouraging because in the end, the daughters of Zalepha had secure their inheritance. But it's discouraging because this story shows that our penchant for building faulty, pernicious structures in the name of human flourishing is at least 4,000 years old. Even our best 4,000-year effort uh, to create human flourishing uh, continues to ostracize, marginalize, demonize, forget, and neglect. It is amazing to me that we haven't changed all that much since this day. A second reflection, and perhaps more encouraging. God hasn't changed much either. It would seem to me that when we consider this story in literally dozens, if not hundreds more in Scripture, that we find a God that is far less concerned with upholding the status quo and affirming the system than we are. If there's one thing we see about the character of God, it's that when we build something, God subverts it in some way. Because we are prone to exclude, intentionally and, and purposefully. When we decide something, God adjusts it. When we neglect someone, God beelines it for those folks. Our God is a God of the dispossessed and the disinherited. So even when our attempts are well-intentioned, which again, I'll say that over and over again today. I don't want to talk about intentions. Good intentions and well-wishing doesn't get much for the daughters of Zelophehad. Any more than well-wishing from the rabbi helped the dying man on the side of the road. No, that man, like these daughters, like the margins of the society today, need access and security. Thank God for the Good Samaritan. And thanks be to God, we serve a God far less impressed with our efforts to build cultural norms, societal expectations, nations, countries, denominations, and churches than we are. Let us not be the ones, as Christians, whose ears are deaf to the cries of those who right now are crying for access and security in this world, whose inheritance is being denied or limited because of a current system or a border or a law. Let us not remain ignorant to this stuff. So, who is in need of access and security today? There were uh, innumerable directions I could have gone on this one. Uh, I didn't feel like it was right as a male to speak on behalf of women. So I went to one that was a little closer to, to home for me, which is immigration. Uh, so bear with me as I go through this a little bit. I haven't been a Christian very long, as I said. Only about seven years. And before I was a Christian, I studied poli-sci in college. And from a family of Venezuelans, I was never all that compelled by Americanism. Uh, like our deep love for this nation, our willing to die for it, our willing to fight wars constantly in the name of peace, etc. And in studying poli-sci for several years, I saw that, yes, this recent peak of nationalism, nation building, um, our identity being found inside our borders, is at best a recent phenomenon. This is not always how it's been. So, uh, Forced to study history, like with real facts and real events and whatnot, not just talking points, all of us will be forced to confront the quite messy and evil parts of this nation's story and the way that we've built laws. 
All while our songs and tales tell of things like George Washington never telling a lie, and our founding fathers, who, parenthetical thought, had an option to abolish slavery and punted on it, were heroes and men of God, that the star-spangled banner, parenthetical thought, written in the middle of a bloody war we initiated, described our country's bravery and resolve. Go America. Knowing our history makes all of this a bit absurd, if not comical. So when I became a Christian, I think I was a little just surprised by the way that Christianity and Americanism had kind of overlapped and become a similar thing. Uh, Why was this? It was the very people claimed by a transcendent God, a kingdom that has no borders and includes all, whose texts and Messiah, Jesus, called us into a totally different economy and a totally different relationalism and a totally different way of being that then had linked themselves to the social norms and economies of the kingdoms here on earth, which at most points are antithetical to the kingdom of God. It is the very tribe, us, uh, Christians, who should not call for the strict and rigid preservation of what we know as the American way or the American law. We must maintain our language, some say. We must maintain our way of life. We must solidify our borders. We must build a wall. This is the rule of law. We must follow it. Things must be done here legally. All of this we're hearing right now. But again, to know history is to know that this soil, the soil we stand on now, used to be another's. And only through America's goal of expanding her empire were places like New Mexico and California, where I just came from, stolen from another empire. Of course, we propositioned Mexico to take California and other territories off her hands. She wasn't much interested in that. So then we were forced into war, of course. Now, why do I say this? Because we were forced to donate lives in the cause of dispossessing others legally in order to write laws, right? And small aside, we literally drew borders around key resources within that land cutting Mexico off from key uh, water sources and land for, uh, for agriculture. So quite literally, Mexicans don't cross our borders. Our borders cross Mexico. And for a Christian, I think this can't be ignored. I think it's applicable today. One more thing, NAFTA. Lots to talk about here. Stick with me, not going to go into the weeds. But NAFTA is like a common, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a talking point right now, especially with the current administration. NAFTA was a well-intentioned non-tariff agreement between three American, North American countries. Under such a system, no one country would be limited by the other with stiff and steep border tariffs for the movement of goods, say Mexican corn sold to America and Mexican coal sent to Mex- or American coal sent to Mexico. So it sounds on its face like this law as a good system for human flourishing, one built on good intentions, one built for the sake of all. Except that's not how it worked out. Even the most cursory understanding of NAFTA's effect on the Mexican people should trouble us as Christians deeply, especially as it relates to immigration today. According to a report conducted by NAFTA, in defense of NAFTA, between 1991 and 2007, only 2 million Mexican agricultural jobs were lost in the northern part of Mexico. 4.9 Mexican family farmers were displaced. 4.9 million. This resulted by 1994 in a 79% increase in Mexican immigration, legally and illegally. The removal of tariffs 
through NAFTA on Mexican corn and other goods resulted in Mexican corn farmers being paid 66% less than what they were paid before NAFTA was enacted. And it's estimated by NAFTA that over 75% of Mexican agricultural lands in north half of Mexico were laid barren and destitute as a result of this agreement. So uncoincidentally, it was about this time that Mexican immigration reached its absolute peak into America. Why? Because the jobs jumped north. American national politics suddenly started to care a whole lot about who was coming into this country. It's bad enough that we just allowed black people and women into the formal fold of our country's fabric, but now brown people too, who speak a different language? What's next? We have watched the Christianity in America put on a robe of protectionism, protecting our borders and our way of life from all of these outsiders. Not why, but how. Not who farmers put out of their own business and citizens whose local economy was eradicated. Not who, but how many. And where has the Christian been in this fight? It was surprising to me when God called me into the fold of Christian community here in America that the first community, at least that I was a part of, thought, thought and talked very little bit, little bit about the plight of southern peoples in this country, much less knew anything about the current conditions that they were facing. No, rather than talking about the immigrant as a human being, with a heart, churches all across that, this country right now have turned their focus towards how great our country is while flying an American flag in the sanctuary. Thank God for our country. Thank God for our freedom. Thank God for our military. Thank God for our leaders. Thank God for our borders. We must protect all of this. And look, I get it. I'm a son of an immigrant who is proud to be an American, proud of the good parts of America, and willing to critique the ones that need work. Unquestionably, I'm in better shape with more access than I would have been if my family stayed in Venezuela. If not for the education my father received, uh, we might not be where we are today. I'm grateful for this opportunity here. I'm cloaked in privilege, and the fact that I'm extremely sensitive to its benefits allows me to be this critical, and I would invite all of us to be. Why? Because we're Christians first before we're Americans. But it is precisely my deep gratitude for the opportunity and inheritance allotted to me here that compels me to wish for the same future, particularly amongst the children coming here, of folks that are disadvantaged, disaffected, and disinherited in lands both near and far, especially those that are near that have been dispossessed because of laws that we've made, right? Everything that we've done is legal. I don't want to talk about good intentions. I don't want to talk about what's illegal or legal. Things that we do that are legal cause real harm to people. So, the daughters of Zelephahad had to fight against the legal allotment of land at their time. They did not want to play by the rules of the system because they did not want to suffer the consequences. And when they appealed to God, God said, absolutely, we need to adjust this system. You'd think from over the 60 times, 60 plus times of the first five books of the Bible where we're instructed with very clear and direct language to care for every foreigner in our midst as though we'd care and provide for any other citizen that the Christian should be on the side of the Mexican crossing over the border into our used-to-be-Mexico lands, won through war. But oddly enough, Christians have not a great track record with this. 81% of evangelicals, whether you call yourself evangelical or not, is a different story. 81% of evangelicals uh, voting for Mr. Trump held captive by a very, I would say, unchristian idea of building walls to keep these now non-Americans out of our used-to-be-Mexican lands. 
And honestly, I get it. We are creatures of pattern. Uh, we seek systems and structures to organize us. Uh, you spend five minutes with a psychologist. Our brains can't help but make sense of the world by categorizing others. Right? That's what we do. But we as Christians appeal. Uh, but when we as Christians appeal to the legality of these folks and or our evolutionary proclivity to exclude, that's one I hear a lot, like just kind of a dismissiveness that, hey, we, we, we just exclude, like we just tend to exclude. They'll take the same study that I find about psychology, of, the psychology of categorizing people, and they'll just be like, this is, this is what we do. We can't do anything about it. I don't accept that. Uh, or three, the importance of the law and order in our effects to uphold the current and well-intentioned system and structures of America. Uh, when Christians do this, they simultaneously ignore the history of the border and the real-life economic effects of our policies on other humans. And when we do that, we stop sounding Christian, and we just sound really American. There's a difference. I actually have a tweet that I'm supposed to... I know I'm going heavy, so I thought this one might, might be funny. I can't believe how political Facebook is getting. It's like I'm living in a world with other people who exist and are affected by things. <laughs> Loved it. So, uh, okay, let's get back. So when we think of being American and what that means and who that is and who that isn't and our willingness to defend whatever it is we defend just because this is the way that it's always been, let us remember Numbers 27. Let us remember the daughters of Zelephahad. Let us remember their appeal to the powers of the time to adjust the system for those who sat on the margins, who were dispossessed of an inheritance. The appeal for an inheritance where there previously wasn't one, is a godly act. The thrust to topple the current norms and legislation if they're leaving people out is at its very core a Christian endeavor. Let's stop talking about what is and let's start talking about what could be. The system is often well-intentioned. I will keep saying that so that no one gets too offended. So let's, let's stop talking about intention, and let's recognize that in the places where it's fundamentally flawed, there are human beings who need access. Moses, even a prophet of God, the prophets and the leaders and the sages of God Most High, the God that we worship, who come in Jesus' name and anoint us, they too, I too, all of us too, are in need of making a better way for those who sit in the shadows. This is, again, a Christian endeavor. So when we hear folks amongst us cry for an inheritance, or in our modern time, as I said earlier, access and security, let us consider the Christian responsibility to hear them before we defend the system that they're critiquing. Let us listen before we defend. So when black men are murdered at a record clip by police and disproportionately locked up in a prison system, because, you know, three strikes or you're out is a rule, let us uh, wonder who's benefiting from that system, because clearly they're not. Let us hear them and make a way. When Muslims in this city cry foul for a lack of access and for a lack of security here in this country, and for all the stereotyping against them, and we see them as outsiders because this is a Christian nation, whatever that means, let us be a Christian nation then, by caring for the outsider as if they're our neighbor, as our brothers and sisters in Christ. When folks in Appalachia cry, predominantly white folks, by the way, out of their lack of education and employment, 
Not to mention the way that our country devalues their way of speech and their way of dress and their way of life. Right? These things are complex. Let us, the Christians, hear that rather than defend the system. When women cry foul for being sexually harassed by company executives, being, being not given the benefit of the doubt as the victim, being catcalled on the street like sex objects, for being paid 60%, 66% of what a man is paid in the workforce, let us hear them and fight to adjust that system in the spirit of the daughters of Zelophehad. Most of all, let our Christian imagination and our Christian ethic not be held captive nor spoken to or spoken for by the power of the system and those seeking to uphold it. Let us participate in God-centered, kingdom-oriented, unraveling and unbinding of things. It's an invitation to unravel and unbind, to pull the sweater apart. Because if one's inheritance is limited, we need to keep working. Let us, like the daughters of Zelophehad, be those that unravel things. Let us set standards for people who come after us. It's community work, and this requires togetherness. So let us work together. Jesus woke Lazarus up from his death. That is a beautiful miracle. That is also just one piece. But Lazarus needed his community to unravel all the tightly wrapped pieces of cloth around his body. Without that community, he'd just be a very alive guy, all bound up like a zombie, walking around like a fool. <laughs> At the end of the day, this is community work, this unraveling. It requires all of us, and we must engage it. We need each other as we unravel this stuff because the process is often, and, and we can't overlook this, the process is um, painful, it's alarming, it's indicting, it's scary to imagine a new way, uh, to do something illegally or resist a current standard gets you arrested, gets you ostracized, you'll lose friends, etc. Jesus also promised that a lot of that was going to happen, so, but that's a, that's a different sermon. Take the image of Lazarus alive, but walking around all bound up and apply it here. We are alive, we're set free, we're called the children of God. Jesus' blood washes over us, makes us white as snow. Still the work of unraveling and unbinding is not close to over. So let us keep working. Luckily, we have a God who helps us with this. As, God, we, as, as a God that we can bring appeals to and say, hey, pay attention to that cry, Christian, because that person is right and you need to adjust. Let us not disinherit and dispossess or affirm a system that disinherits and dispossesses. Let us not be the people who can hear the cries of the daughters of Zelephahad, for those cries reverberate throughout history and even today. Who are the daughters of Zelephahad today? Who's crying out against the system and the leadership that affirms such a system? Are we listening to them? Are we near enough to those without inheritance, like ours, to hear and to feel their dispossession? If not, let's get nearer. And let us appeal to the God who subverts and upends systems that continue to oppress and limit the inheritance structure of those, uh, the inheritance structure of who gets what and why. And in doing so, perhaps the act of unbinding will reveal and seep out of our lives with Jesus Christ. Because actually in our community, taking off the tightly bound wraps around our body is the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that, the process will continue. So to that, I say, in closing, let those who have eyes hear, eyes see, and let those who have ears hear. Amen. Let's say a quick prayer. God, uh, 
We know you're a God that um, does not draw borders, uh, invisible and seen. We know you're a God that goes out, uh, who goes to throw a party, goes out and says, bring everybody in. Let us be a people who have that same spirit. Let us bring everybody in. Let us be willing to extend the table and to take the hinges off the doors and to eradicate the borders. Because we know that is the work of the daughters of Zelephahad, and we know that they have a heart after you, and so too we must have a heart after you. It's in that inclusion and embrace and affirmation that we rest in you, and we say, Amen.